This is your daily real estate syndication show, and I am your host, Whitney Sewell. Today is a highlight show that's packed with value from different guests around a specific topic. Don't forget to like and subscribe, but also go to lifebridgecapital.com where you can sign up to start investing in real estate today. I hope you enjoy the show. Our guest is Ted Lanzaro. Thanks for being on the show, Ted. Thank you, Whitney, for having me. I really appreciate it. I know a lot of investors that are listening and are wondering, you know, how do we do this? What does that mean? Is this something I should do? You know, this 1031 lingo that we hear all the time, right? So, you know, let's get started as far as, you know, maybe you give us just some brief background of what this is and, and then let's dive into some details. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. I mean, it really is one of the available strategies when you sell an investment property. It's one of the available strategies to defer the capital gains on the sale of the property. It's probably, in my mind, the most important wealth building strategy in real estate investing. And here's why. Let me give you an example. So I had a client. He was a plumber. Okay, And as a plumber, he would go out and he would do his business. But he also started picking up small residential units, you know, a two-family here, a four-family there, you know, a small apartment building. And over a period of about eight years, he built up a portfolio of about 150 units, right, that he was running and managing locally. Now, this was in South Florida, and this was at a time when the market had be- was beginning to rise. The prices were starting to go up. And so what he did was he actually sold his entire portfolio to another investor. And he would have had about a million dollar capital gain on the sale of all of those properties. And so what he did was he decided, well, I'm going to do a 1031 exchange. And he went and he bought a shopping center on the main road in Boca Raton, Florida, where I lived and use that shopping center as his replacement property. So he never paid tax on the million dollars. He just did this 1031 exchange and bought a replacement property for actually more than what he sold the whole portfolio for. So now over the next year, year and a half, he's fixing up the shopping center and he's putting new tenants into it. Right. And the market's continuing to rise at this point also. So at one point when he's complete, he's got it fully rented. He gets an offer for it, which is two million dollars more than they paid for it. Okay, so now he's got basically a three million dollar capital gain. And so he's like, well, what do I do now? I'm going to do another 1031 exchange. And so he took the proceeds from the from the shopping center and he ended up investing them passively into six auto zone buildings in Texas, which cost him a little bit more than what he had sold his shopping center for. But now he's completely passive. It's a triple net lease. So AutoZone's paying all the expenses on the buildings. He has a management company who basically collects the rent writes the mortgage check and sends him the balance. And at that point, he's making about $40,000 a month, totally passive, and now he's retired, right? And so he's never paid these. He's he's up now like $3 million in capital gains. It hasn't been a cent in capital gains tax because he's been using the 1031 exchange to defer these capital gains. So you can see how that's like over the course of about five years, 
his net worth went up by three or four million dollars, but he never paid a dime in taxes, and that's why why I say it's it's a very important wealth building strategy. Wow. Do you? Th- I was going to ask you about how long that took, but you said about five years, and that's about five very years. impressive. Do you think that was the timing of the market of when he got in, or do you think that you know most people could do that in you know say four to six years? Well, I think a lot of it had to do with the timing of the market, right? You know, so it's a great strategy when you're picking up things at the bottom and then selling them as the market rises. Okay. Now, did he pay a premium for the properties he bought in Texas, you know, at the end of the auto zones? Yeah, because he was at the height of the market at that point, but he was also deferring gain and he knew he was getting into a kind of a low return kind of scenario, but he had already deferred all of this gain. So and it was triple net. It was easy. It was passive. So he didn't have to do anything else but collect his money every month. Wow. Five years of retirement right there. That's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, what are some, so I guess, some basic rules, some basic things we need to understand if we're looking at, you know, this same scenario or being able to do a 1031, you know, from one deal to the next and growing our portfolio that way? Okay, so the way it works is that when you sell a property, all of the proceeds of that property go sort of into escrow, what is called a qualified intermediary. It's somebody who facilitates 1031 exchanges. At that point, you have 45 days to identify properties. You can either identify up to three properties of any market value, or you can identify more than three properties, but they can't be more than double what the value of the property you're selling is. At that point, after you've done your identification, you then have a total of 180 days to close on those one or more of those properties. From a practical and investor standpoint, right, you don't start looking for the properties, you know, the day of the closing of the property you're selling. I mean, you know you're selling a property there's typically, but from the time you sell the contract until the time the buyer gets through their due diligence, right? There's, you know, there might be three months there. There's, you know, nine days. So you should be looking at a property, you know, that whole time, right? So that you're actually adding to the clock by looking for replacement properties before the 45-day window ever even starts, which is the day you close on the sale. So what could people be doing like now where the market's a little little tighter or whatever, right? Let's say I have a property that I might be willing to exchange. Or let's say I come across a great property right now, right? So I know that I can put my other property on the market and probably sell pretty fast in this market. There's a huge demand for rental properties right now. So let's say I find a property that I know has a better rate of return than something I currently own, right? Well, now I can actually just say, okay, look, I'm going to buy this property. I even start that process. And then I put my other property on the market, you know, with the idea that I could probably do, they might even end up exchanging simultaneously, right? Or So you began the process of buying the second property before selling the first one. I could if I wanted to, right? Because I've identified this property. Maybe I just put a contract on it, knowing that I could sell. I mean, this is, you know, this is from an investor standpoint, right? right? Knowing that I can sell my existing property. Correspondingly, right? If I've got a property that I'm making, you know, that I bought 10 years ago and I'm making 10% on it, 
you know, I need to be able to find a better property in this market. And that's why a lot of 1031 exchanges, at least right now, don't happen because it's very difficult to find a better replacement property. So, you know, I have a client who, you know, sold the property. He's got a million-dollar capital gain. It's going to cost him $300,000 if he has to pay the taxes. Well, we ultimately came to, after looking at what was available in this market where he wanted to be, we ultimately came to the conclusion that he was better off paying the taxes than he was buying a property that he wasn't going to get a really good good rate of return on, you know, and was going to be a management problem for him because he didn't want to have, you know, big management problems. Wow. You know? So, you know, in the, he didn't want management problems. So what did it up happening with him or can you elaborate? Well, in this scenario, we ended up, you know, paying the tax, you know, which is one of the, you know, it's not the best strategy, right? But there's only, right now, there's only four real things you can do. It's pay the tax, 1031 exchange, seller financing, you know, an installment sale. But now you've got the new opportunity zone scenario also that you can defer stuff. But with the 1031 exchange, you're getting, you know, it's not in, with the opportunity zone, you're getting a short-term deferral with the 1031 exchange. You could actually get a much longer-term deferral, possibly forever. Because getting back to my client that's got the auto zones in Texas, his ultimate plan is to pass those properties on to his kids, right? So when he dies, his children will get a step up in basis on those properties. That's the existing tax law. And what will happen is they'll inherit the property at whatever the market value of that property is at that time. So if they were to turn around and sell those properties the next day, literally, right, they would have zero capital gain on the property because whatever the market value is, that's their basis, right? So that's another very powerful strategy. If you think about it, is using 1031 exchanges to ladder up your portfolio and then passing them along to your children and the increase, nobody ever pays a dime in capital gains on the increase in the market value of those properties. Wow. Our guests are Alex Shandrovsky and Michael Brady. Thank you both for being on the show today, guys. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us. I know all the listeners, if you are in the syndication business, this is a topic and question that I get often and that I've had to deal personally in our own business as well, is how do we do a 1031 exchange into a syndication? You know, it seems so complex in the beginning and what that should look like. And I know you as a listener also have questions about how to do this properly. And these guys are experts. They are the experts on 1031 exchange. So, but a little about them before we get started. They both represent Madison 1031, a national qualified intermediary for tax deferred exchanges, internal revenue code 1031. Alex is a Silicon Valley seasoned entrepreneur starting with a $3,000 loan. He built a multi-million dollar catering business serving leading tech companies, including Google, Airbnb, and Facebook. As business director for Madison 1031, he provides clients with expert lawyer and CPA approved 1031 exchanges. Michael is executive vice president at Madison 1031 and is a certified exchange specialist and attorney. He has over 25 years of experience representing clients in commercial and residential real estate transactions, as well as a wide variety of business transactions and commercial litigation matters, and has acted as general counsel to the title insurance company. 
So guys, thank you all again for your time today. And so I guess, you know, get us started in this process a little bit. I was thinking about, you know, if we have an investor that wants to 1031 into one of our syndications, you know, what does that look like to make that actually happen and structure that or make sure we're doing it legally and working with somebody like yourself? Okay. Yeah. So, you know, structurally, you'll have uh, somebody who sold a piece of property, right? They've entered into a 1031 exchange. Very critical that they do that before they close on their sale. They'll have a qualified intermediary that's then holding the money, right? They have 45 days from the closing of their sale to identify their replacement property. So you want to work with them very quickly to get them to identify your property. And specifically, they should identify the percentage interest they're buying in your project. You know, so if they're buying a 10% interest, they should say, I'm buying a 10% interest in 123 Main Street, Dallas, Texas. Let's say, you know, that's important. And then once they're ready to close with you, it's pretty much, you know, well, it's a little bit different. They'll have, actually have to be a formal closing whereby, you know, you or, you know, if sometimes you see these parties come in together with the syndicate to buy the property, but essentially a deeded interest will go to that buyer. Through a closing, we, as the qualified intermediary, take assignment of whatever agreement you have with them, the benefits of that, and we fund the transaction. So if we have a million dollars, we'll send a million dollars you know, to whoever's handling the closing, and the deed will go to the buyer directly. So you do, you know, you have to be able to have legal counsel or a title company or somebody who's going to actually do that deed. That's essentially it. And certainly legal counsel should be involved in what we call a tenant and common agreement between the parties. So I mean, I'm just going to jump into a question to Mike because uh, this is really fascinating. So does a syndicate require uh, agreement from the other investors to be able to bring in 1031 exchange investor? Well, that's going to that's a good question. Essentially, it's going to depend on whatever that syndication agreement provides. So typically, you know, the limited partners in a syndicate don't have much control over how things are structured. And so, you know, the syndicators generally, you know, as the manager of the syndicate is, or the general partner, even depending on what your structure is, it has the ability to make those decisions typically. And there may be exceptions to that, but typically they should be permitted to do that. That's a great question. And anything else that, as the operator that like, I mean, it was a great question. How does it bind our hands, you know, by allowing a 1031 and anything else that would be negative, that would negatively affect the operations or could potentially negatively affect it. I mean, just like not being able to sell because this one person has decided, you know, they don't want to sell their interest or at least delaying the sale. Anything else that we need to be aware of before entering into something like this? Well, the other problem, of course, is that they also have the right to sell. Right. So it's their their property. They can sell at any point that they can find a buyer. So you may, you know, be in business with, you know, John and John decides to sell to Mary and you may not like Mary. <laughs> you know, and typically you can structure things. You can have things like, you know, write a first option. You know, so the syndicate may have the option if you, if John wants to sell, they have the option to buy John out rather than let John sell in the free market. Yeah, you know, so there's some protection you can have there. And you know, fair market value, obviously. You know, those are the typical headaches that you face with the 1031 investor in a syndicated deal. I mean, there's some other structures you can set up that I'm not seeing too much in syndicated deals, but people are using things called Delaware statutory trust on the institutional level, which is a different structure, similar to 10 in common. We can spend an hour just talking about Delaware statutory trust, so we won't do that. But uh, that's another thing that people on the institutional level are looking at, you know, whereas they used to sell, you know, companies like Inland Capital and Pasco used to sell 10 in common investments. They found it much preferable to sell Delaware statutory trusts. So that's been kind of the structure since the financial crisis. So that's something that smaller syndicators can look at 
again, you're going to want to have good counsel structure those transactions for you. And that may be kind of another way to get into it. Okay. So the investors reached out and says, hey, I've got a property I'm going to sell. I'd like to do a 1031 exchange. They're going to connect with somebody like yourself, a custodian, to get the 1031 process started. Then they're going to sell their property or they're going to identify, what, three other properties. And then they're going to sell their property. And then you all would help handle that transaction, right? Actually taking the funds from the sale to investing with this operator. Correct. Yeah. Essentially, we are the middleman in the exchange. We do all that documentation that's necessary for tax purposes, the assignment of both contracts. I just want to say that they can identify up to three properties. They don't have to identify three properties and they can even go beyond, but there's some additional rules that apply to that. One other thing I want to mention, because people do forget this, and this is maybe a potential stumbling block with the syndicate, is that the taxpayer has to do two things to fully defer their gain. They have to buy property that's equal or greater in value to what they're selling. And they have to spend all the equity from their sale. Okay, That often means that if they had debt on the property they sold, they will need to take on new debt on their acquisition or assume debt. So to the extent that somebody has a debt component on their sale, that may provide issues on acquiring their replacement property to buying as a tenant in common with the syndicate because they'll have to find a lender for their interests. And they are not necessarily going to be part of the syndicate's debt on the property. So that's some of the the nuance that really needs to be looked at when you're considering these deals. Obviously, your preference is that somebody's coming in with, you know, doesn't have debt because the syndicator wants cash. Yeah. Wow. So just a or go ahead, Alex. Just uh, Mike, can you add uh, to the point of how long does it take for an operator to set up a tech structure? I mean, because we're dealing with such a short time frame, right? Other syndicators, like if Whitney decides that he wants to accept 1031 clients, does he already have to label himself as such? Does he have to have a structure to himself? Is it something that has to be done a year before? Like, can you talk to this audience about, as an operator, how long does it take to actually set up and to accept a 1031 exchange clients? Is that okay with me? Yes, that's great. Please. Yeah, I mean, it really should not take much time. You know, legal counsel can basically do a deed in seconds. You know, they're paralegal do deeds all the time. So the deed is, is a non-issue. The tick agreement, there's some good boilerplate things out there that basically hit all the uh, checklist items from the revenue procedure, setting up that structure. And you know, probably the legal structure is the easiest part of it. It's more the operating structure, right? And figuring out internally how you're going to do this and working with the accountants to make sure that you know the returns and everything match. But as far as the transactional structure, it can be done very, very quickly. What about the timing too? I was just thinking, okay, you know, the investor has located, you know, the investment they're going to invest in. They've notified that or, but then all of a sudden, you know, they've said, okay, we're going to invest in this syndication, but then maybe that closing date got extended 60 days for whatever reason, you know, are they going to miss their deadline of being able to invest that capital? Yeah, that is a potential issue. They have a maximum of 180 days from the closing of their sale to complete their acquisition. You know, typically. Unless your investors come to you, usually long enough. Minute. Yeah, yeah, it should be long enough because they have to identify your project within 45 days, right? So let's say they wait till the last minute and they identify on the 45th day. Now you got another 135 days to close. You know, when I first started practicing law, that might have been a problem. These days, transactions are closing within a week. You know, that's not typically an issue. The 180 day requirement is usually the lesser of the two evils. The 45 days is usually where people stumble. Anything that that investor needs to be aware of that they may not know when they're partnering, you know, with an operator like that? Because to me, it really seems like 
you know, more of a partnership because you're giving them some quite a bit of control here of their having that ownership. Like you said, this needs to be somebody that you know or potentially have done business with maybe before or something like that. You're not just bringing in somebody random to 1031 into your deal or that's never been in real estate before. But anything else that they need to know that could negatively affect their investment or, you know, investing with an operator? Yeah, just it's a typical. We always talk to people you know, about, you know, investors. Any type, anytime you're buying a real property, whether it's a syndicated deal, whether it's a standalone property, whether you're buying an institutional Delaware statutory trust or a net lease property for Walgreens or something like that, you got to kick the tires, right? I mean, there's no guaranteed returns out there. You know, people hype a lot and say, you know, you're going to get X, you're going to get Y, you know, but we all know how real estate works, especially, you know, we're in a hot economy right now for real estate. So you got to take a look at the upside and the downside as well. So that, that would be the typical recommendation I have for any real estate investor and syndicators included. As far as the 1031 structure, they just have to make sure it's structured appropriately. They don't want to give up too much control and be considered a partner because then that could bust their exchange. But other than that, you know, it can work. I don't want to certainly discourage anybody from being creative and structuring these things. It's just that it requires some advanced planning, which, uh, you know, I've been around real estate investors long enough to know that sometimes advanced planning is not their strong suit. (laughs) One of the things that we would probably recommend is to look to your current investors and have a conversation where you educate them about the, the value of 1031 because it's possible that they have other real estate that they might be able to sell off and come into new deals. And those are the people you're currently doing deals with and currently have current investors. They might not be even aware this is an option. So those people you already vetted, you trust, they already see the value of relationships. So you'd be surprised how many people don't believe you can do a 1031 onto a syndicate. So your job as a syndicator could be about educating your current investors, not just future investors about this potential. And obviously, Mike and I are there to support you and be able to help them have all the information that can make the most educated guess about how to move forward. So your current investors, you want to make sure that the current investor is educated about the value of 1031 exchange because many of you'll be surprised how they would not just not know. That's great advice. Uh, No doubt about it. We definitely need to educate them about this. And we are about out of time, unfortunately. We just got a couple minutes left. But, you know, maybe you can briefly speak to or quickly speak to, you know, the 1031 exchange, you know, when we're selling a deal as an operator, you know, into another deal, you know, and how the investors would work moving from one to another deal if they wanted to, you know, 1031 from one deal to another. Yeah, ideally, you will be such a great syndicator and manager (laughs) of your property that everybody wants to stay with you and does not want to cash out. In that case, you've got a home run. It's easy. You just go as a syndicate. You go to your contract. You sell to your buyer. You have the same deadlines, 45, 180, and then you go close on a replacement property and everybody goes along with you and continues to make money until they can roll it into the next bigger and even better project. That's ideal. If not, if you have the advanced knowledge that you know a sale is imminent or you know maybe it's part of your business plan, you're going to hold this property seven years, at which time if the market supports it, you're going to sell. So maybe you start doing some advanced planning in year five or six. And you say to your investors, well, who wants to take the ride and who wants to separate? And if you know that people are separating, let's get them out of the partnership now, feed the property to them as tenants in common, and you know, begin operating differently. Yeah, maybe as you as the syndicator, maybe giving up some of your rights in that instance for a short period of time, you know, for a year or two, and then everybody goes their separate ways, or some people go their separate ways in year seven when the property is sold. 
And just especially, Mike, maybe just talk for a second, especially in states like New York and California, that's really important. Yeah, that's a good point because we're less concerned. The federal government, not that they do not audit 1031 exchanges because they do, but they are they do have some limitations in resources and they've kind of butted heads and have fought this partnership issue several times. And in tax courts, the results have not been favorable for the IRS by and large. So we tend to be more concerned about how the state governments look at this. So if you have investors who have a property, your property is in Texas, your investors are mostly Texans, and they're going to do this, there's no Texas income tax, (laughs) right? So, you know, there's no state regime looking at this. But if you're, you know, if you have a New York project with a New York investor or a combination of New York and California investors, well, the states tend to be a little bit more aggressive are taking a look at these transactions a little bit more closely, particularly California. And more recently, we're seeing it in New York. Some of the other states, you know, I'm not seeing as much as some of the other states, such as New Jersey and, you know, uh, all the other income tax regime states in the country, which are the majority. We're not hearing as much, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. Meaning you're going to want to establish a tenant common agreements way in advance before sales. So that's why that conversation here five is really important. If you're in Texas or Florida, shouldn't worry so much, but then, you know, on this conversation is happening, year five is really important because yeah, you need a year or two typically to establish that tenant common partnership so it'll be held up with a state tax authority. Thank you for being a loyal listener of the Real Estate Syndication Show. Please subscribe and like the show. Share it with your friends so we can help them as well. Don't forget, go to lifebridgecapital.com where you can sign up and start investing in real estate today. Have a blessed day.